we see all of these startup stories and we see them exit. But what we don't know is, you know, if you replay that story 10 times, taking the growth at all costs, chasing me how many times would we get to the same outcome? We, we have the survivorship bias that exists. And I believe that taking this camel-like approach means that more often you get to this outcome that we all desire of a successful scale. And, and that's really what, what building a camel is. Hi, and welcome back to the Insights podcast series from Axel. I'm your host, Anand Daniel. Today, I'm excited to invite Alex Lazarov to the podcast. Alex has written a fascinating book called Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. I really enjoyed my chat with Alex. We talked about how innovators at the frontier are changing the game and what are the key aspects of innovating in the frontier. Let's dive right in. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for waking up early and uh, joining us early in the morning in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this so late in the day for you. Thank you. So first, maybe quickly introduce yourself uh, to the audience and then we'll talk about your book. Happily. So I'm uh, by day a venture capitalist. I work for a fund called Cathay Innovation. No relation to the airline or the bank. It's a Paris-based group uh, that invests around the world. Our latest fund is a 500 million euro vehicle, a third Asia, a third North America, a third Europe. We also have a Pan-Africa venture fund in partnership with African Invest. And the whole group is affiliated with Cathay Capital, a Paris-based uh, larger private equity fund that invests all around the world, has eight offices. So that's my day job. Outside of work, I've been teaching entrepreneurship at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey, helping students think about building business models around the world. And so I've always had one foot living in Silicon Valley and another investing in entrepreneurs or teaching students about entrepreneurship outside the Valley as well. Great. So I was pleasantly surprised reading your book, Out Innovated, which one of my friends referred me to, where you talk about the global entrepreneurship landscape and building the future, which is at the frontier, which we'll talk more about. But I want to maybe take a step back, ask you what made you write the book? Give us a little bit of background there. Yeah, happily. The book, Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit Are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley, was just released by Harvard Business Review Press about a month ago and available worldwide. And the reason I, I wrote it was a little bit out of this genesis of my own experience with this dissonance between working in, investing in, uh, from, and teaching uh, in Silicon Valley, but supporting entrepreneurs around the world. Whenever I was assigning books or lessons to my students, for instance, I was getting increasingly frustrated that the material I had to share with them was incredibly Silicon Valley specific. It was stuck in a particular context of abundance, of abundance of capital, of an incredible depth of trained startup human capital, plentiful resources, and of course, a market that you know is a very developed and doesn't generally face massive macroeconomic shocks. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs from Detroit or Chicago or Amsterdam or Nairobi or Bangalore or Delhi have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet no one is telling their stories. So I decided I would. I interviewed about 200 entrepreneurs from around the world. I feature just under 60, many of them from India, actually. And I think that taken together, the way I set up the book 
is I go through a bunch of conventional wisdoms in the Valley and, thing, and things that we'll talk about in this chat and how in many ways the best global entrepreneurs are not only challenging those conventional wisdoms, increasingly they're reinventing startup best practice in a meaningful way and ways and taking it together. In some ways, they don't just offer us a repudiation of these conventional wisdoms. They offer us a brand new playbook for innovation and a playbook to innovate in ecosystems that look different than the Valley, that in some cases face constraints, but in many cases turn those constraints into distinct advantages. And that's why I call it Out Innovate. So that's why I wrote the book. Great. You had Delhi in the title, which uh, got me excited initially. And then as I started reading the book, it was, uh, it was very, very uh, well written. Congrats. So I want to start with uh, some of the key concepts, particularly you talk about the future is at the frontier. What do you mean by that? Can you explain and uh, go into that concept? Yeah. So, and I think this is one of the central settings that's important or the context of the book is I think over the last 10 years, we've in some ways had a little bit of a myopia, certainly in the Valley around where innovation comes from. And there's very, this Silicon Valley centric philosophy and approach and view that that's where it comes. But the reality is innovation has truly gone global. This is no news to you, of course. But today, right, the majority of the unicorns are outside the US. 10% of them are coming from some of the most emerging markets. The world's biggest digital bank is in Brazil. The world's biggest payments network startup is in China and probably very closely followed by, by PTM in India. The world's largest mobile bank initiative by penetration is in Kenya. Right? And so many of these innovators from around the world are not only scaling, they're actually building models that are challenging any of their international counterparts. And so I believe that what we're seeing right now is the beginning of a macro shift where the value will continue to be important, but there are going to be incredible ecosystems that prosper and succeed around the world, and they will all look different. But I think in many ways today, they have so much more in common together than they do with the value. So that was part of the genesis. But I think there's a couple of drivers to that. I think one, it's cheaper than ever to build a business anywhere. And part of that is driven by just ecosystem infrastructure, right? Things like Amazon Web Services make it easy to rent a supercomputer by the hour. But a bunch of other, this horizontal stack infrastructure that's happening, I mean, that's getting built. In India, for instance, Adar, I think is part of that trend. And we can talk about it later. Two is, I think, an increase in capital. And while capital is still pretty concentrated in certain pockets, that's changing. Three is a is really a globalization of this entrepreneurial culture. And this isn't kind of entrepreneurship writ large, but really this startup-focused entrepreneurship is, is really scaling. And, and then four, I think this is becoming top of the policy agendas for governments and ecosystems and ecosystem builders around the world as a way to solve uh, societal challenges, create jobs, et cetera. And so for a lot of reasons, I, I think that we're seeing a massive push that's going to continue over the next decade and, and beyond. And with that, we're going to see a different playbook emerge as well. So that's why I believe the, the future is at, at what I call the frontier, uh, but essentially ecosystems, the new ecosystems that are scaling outside the valley. Got it. And you also talk about the SV rule, the Silicon Valley rule book won't do anymore or won't do for the frontier. Why do you say that? Yeah, really interesting. Like I wrote the book two years ago. And in some ways, I was reacting to things that I didn't resonate with. You know, this idea of growth at all costs for instance, right? Of you have to scale and it's okay if your unit economics don't work and it's okay to burn a lot of capital and it's okay to try to flip the thing as quickly as possible. Like that worked fine for a very small subset of businesses that happen to have the luxury of a lot of capital, um, of being in a winner-takes-all market, et cetera. But for most businesses, it didn't, right? And 
So I think there's things like that or this, this notion of move fast and break things. And it's okay to take risks and it's okay if your product fails. Like that's okay if your product offers software and that software isn't mission critical to people's lives. But as soon as you're starting to offer you know, someone a bank account that they're relying on or a healthcare product or something, you can't fail on those products and services. You have to actually take a different attitude. And so I was reacting this to this rule book or there's a version where I might've called the book Startup Heretic, which is one of the ideas I had mm-hmm. on the this idea of like the gospel according to Silicon Valley and this, this kind of like new, these new, new methods that were coming out. I joked with that title a little bit because I think we're breaking this playbook and we're breaking this approach with a new fresh, fresh look. And some of these are a little bit what's old is new, right? This is common sense stuff, but it's new for the innovation industry. Got it. No, that's that's a good uh, segue into diving deeper into building startups at the frontier, right? So you've talked about a bunch of different aspects of uh, frontier innovators. Maybe let's start out with uh, the first one, the social impact and creators, uh, as you call them. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and give some examples as well. Yeah, and this and the reason I, I started the book with this question of creators is because before talking about how to build startups, I think it's important to think about what startups get built. And what do I mean by creators and what's a disruptor? In the Valley, I think we're obsessed with this notion of disruption. Someone's either disrupting or getting disrupted. And it's more than semantics. It's really this approach to saying the problems we're going to be solving are the ones where there's an existing industry that is inefficient and we're going to tackle it with a new product, a new attitude, and a new approach and hopefully make and scale a business out of that. And that's fine. But I think that around the world, the best entrepreneurs are taking a different approach. They're creators instead of disruptors. What do I mean by that? Three things. One is they're building a product or service that was previously not available in the market or might have been offered through informal services and now is getting formalized. Two is the solution gets offered to the mass market, not the top of the pyramid. And three, often the entrepreneurs that build this are the shoulders of giants upon which others build. And so that's really this philosophical shift of what's getting built. And it's building the infrastructure for societies, things in healthcare, financial services, education, mobility and logistics, agriculture, things like that. There was a study around the unicorns in the U.S. by Village Capital and determined that less than 20%, 18% of unicorns in the U.S. were tackling things in those sectors. And yet in emerging markets, that number is meaningfully higher. And you'll have to tell me what it is in India. In sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, it's over 60% right? A meaningful shift of where people focus on. And that number will obviously shift by region and the strength of the local ecosystem or what, what have you. But the point is, is that the question that entrepreneurs are looking to solve, it looks different and they are creators. The other thing that is part of it that I think is really powerful is that they weave social impact into the business model. And notwithstanding the fact that alone they're creating jobs and building the startup ecosystems, but also one of the things that I've admired is some of the best entrepreneurs think about the impact they want in their business and weave it in. It's very easy if you're doing something that's D to C, right? And you're doing mass market financial inclusion product or health product. Like that, that makes sense. And, and a lot of businesses could do it. But you can also do it in more tricky businesses. One business I like a lot in India is, is Revigo, where, you know, Revigo has a logistics platform and their tagline is this idea of making logistics human. And, you know, the way their, their business model works is instead of having a driver drive days on end in one direction, and then maybe come back with an empty load and have a really poor lifestyle being away from home so long. They've created a system where a driver drives 24 hours in one direction, gives the load to someone else who then drives, you know, maximum 24 hours in another direction. And 
and can come home with a load hopefully as well. So has more utilization of the system, is home more often, so has a better lifestyle. And that's correlated with lower driver churn, higher efficiency in the business, and obviously also financial and economic success of the business. It's one of the reasons they've been able to scale so much. Got it. But just to be clear, these are not socially focused innovators, right? So they are creators, but in the process of creating something, they're also creating jobs and having a positive social impact. Like the Rivigo example you gave. Any other such examples from other parts of the world that you've looked at? Yeah, and so the reason I mentioned the Rivigo example is, is just given the Indian context, but also the fact that they built it into their, in a way that you wouldn't ascribe to, you know, thinking of an impact business. That wouldn't be the, the place I would jump on uh, naturally. I would think of a bunch of other types of businesses. But, you know, one of the businesses I interviewed that I really liked was the was Zola Electric in, in Africa. Essentially, you know, there's 1.2 billion people without electricity around the world, 800 million of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a big part of them that are uh, in India as well, of course. What, what this company does is, you know, basically people can't afford a home solar system and they're not connected to the grid. There's no grid where they live, but they do buy kerosene every day. And so what this company does is they offer home solar systems. Imagine two solar panels, battery pack, a couple of chargers, lights, a TV, kind of a modern home lighting experience. But they transform this really large upfront payment into small daily, weekly, monthly installments that people can afford that match what they spend already. And they succeed when customers keep paying for their product over time. They succeed when they're having impact on people's lives and are providing modern electricity. And so I think that's kind of an example of this D2C style business that I was talking about as well, where you can really understand how the impact is deeply ingrained. And so, but, but I think the point is that you can do it across a range of products and services. And I think you're right. Like, you know, I actually would say that the best entrepreneurs around the world that are having impact are social enterprises. It's just that not all social enterprises are startups, if you know what I mean, right? Like, so in the book, I, I define them as multi-mission athletes of using multiple approaches to tackle one problem. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So that's uh, the first concept. And the other one that you talk about in the frontier innovators is uh, building full stack. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that. And if we were going to take a step back, a lot of the book talks about how the best entrepreneurs have to do more with less. And building the full stack is a good example of that, where if you're a creator, if you're operating in a more nascent developing market, often to be able to build the startup, even if you're building the exact same model as you were doing a Silicon Valley thing, you have to build more of that business infrastructure. I'll give you one example of a business in Brazil called Guia Bolso that was trying to build a personal finance management. So an app that allowed you to track what your bank balances were, how much you owed, find better financial products, that kind of thing. In the US, Mint.com built that, but they built an app to be able to connect to people's bank accounts is pretty easy. There's a business called Yodli, we plugged into that. And then to be able to figure out what better credit offerings, you know, someone's overpaying on their, on their credit cards. They had people's credit score through FICO that existed. And there was a bunch of fintechs that were ready to pay and acquire users on the platform. So they only had to build the app. Giaboso, conversely, in Brazil, built the app, but they realized that they couldn't connect to the bank accounts. There was no Yodli or Plaid or something like that. They had to build that themselves. And then to be able to give insights to their customers about their credit, well, there was no credit score. There's only a blacklist. You were either in default or you weren't. So they had to build their own Credit Karma style platform to give insights on credit worthiness and teach people how to do it. And then to get to be able to monetize, they also had to think about how to create a lending ecosystem and they build a white label type platform to give people access. They had to build four businesses in one to do the same thing. That obviously is not unique to that kind of product, right? You think of 
a business like Flipkart or something like that, had to build logistics infrastructure that didn't exist before, addressing infrastructure, how to manage cash on delivery, what have you, right? Having to build a lot more capabilities just to do the exact same thing. And often within startup ecosystems that have less capital, right? And that have less resources. And so it's this notion of having to do more with less. And that's this idea of the full stack is that often you have to build a bunch of vertical enabling infrastructure to be able to offer the final product that you want. And this obviously sounds daunting and I think it's really challenging. I think paradoxically, it comes with some advantages. And one advantage is that it makes it obviously so much harder a mountain for you to climb, but it makes it that much harder for everyone else to climb as well. And so it A, creates a little bit of a moat. Um, Some of the things that you build can often be horizontal infrastructure that you offer others. So it can ancillary businesses and some people who consider doing that depending on their business model. And third, I think it forces an attitude and approach in, in how to build businesses. And we'll talk a little bit about this, this camel idea too, but, but I, think that's, I think that's one of the notions around it. That's great. That's a good segue. So I've had entrepreneurs refer to themselves as cockroaches and other things in this podcast. So one of the entrepreneurs, uh, Ashish Imrajani from Book My Show, he said, I'm like a cockroach. I'll survive through anything and come out. But first time I heard uh, camels. You see, you refer to camels versus unicorns. Talk to us about that. There is a true menagerie of animals in the startup universe beyond unicorns. I've heard of cockroaches, <laughs> uh, rhinos. There's the zebra movement in the U.S. There are horses. The Canadians have the narwhals with the horn. There's a whole range of them. I chose to define this idea around a camel, around building startups that weave sustainability and resilience in the business model from day one. And I chose the camel for a specific reason because you know everyone chooses an analogy of an animal to really explain a point. And What's the point? Um, a camel is an animal that can survive in the world's harshest environments. It can sprint across the desert when it needs to. It can guzzle water faster than almost any other animal when the opportunity is there. It can thrive in good times. But when it needs to, it can also survive in the world's harshest environments. And that was the balance that I want to talk about. And I think that the best entrepreneurs around the world do three things simultaneously. The first is they build business models that have sustainability and resiliency from the unit economics perspective done from day one. And that means it's not subsidizing user acquisition. It means it's not a free product, right? It's thinking very carefully about a unit economic business model that works. Two is managing costs, right? I think there's a temptation when you have a lot of capital to jack up the the burn rate in service of growing revenue. And I think you can do that. And I think it's appropriate in a very limited amount of business models where it's winner takes all. But for most businesses, I think that uh, you can manage that and manage the risk of the business by by uh, not increasing burn way ahead of where you are on the business. And third is taking a long-term view. A story I love in this market um, is uh, from Chicago, a company called Grubhub. I often think of on-demand delivery as a business model that is highly venture subsidized. Right? Think of DoorDash, raised $1.5 billion. Grubhub raised what we might consider a paltry amount by Silicon Valley standards, less than $100 million of venture. They're now a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. And when I interviewed Mike Evans, the COO, he talked a lot about how at every single fundraise, they were sustainable. And every single fundraise was for a very specific purpose. Expand to a couple other cities, do a small acquisition, and how taking a long-term view helped manage risk. It took him about 10 years to IPO and asked him, you know, why don't you speed that up? you could have grown a little bit faster. He said, look, if I had increased my burn, I could have gotten to exit two years faster, but I would have done so at tremendously more risk. And that's really the point, is we see all of these startup stories and we see them exit. 
But what we don't know is, you know, if you replay that story 10 times, taking the growth at all costs, chasing me, how many times would we get to the same outcome? We, we have this survivorship bias that exists. And I believe that taking this camel-like approach means that more often you get to this outcome that we all desire of a successful scale. And, and that's really what, what building a camel is. It's obviously we're still trying to grow and obviously we're still trying to benefit from things like uh, network effects and scale and moats, but we're doing it with balance in mind, right? Of growing at a pace where perhaps you're not uh, driving the uh, cash burn curve down quite as, quite as uh, hard. In some cases, in the case of Grubhub, it was more like ditches of death, many little spurts of growth. Um, but you're doing it a service of sustainable scale over time. Got it. That's a very good concept, like sustainable scaling, especially given the times, I think it's very relevant. The other thing that I liked is going global from the get-go. That's a thesis that we have backed as in our fund. But I have to hear your perspective on going global from get-go. You also talk about building eight teams. Maybe you can talk about, touch on both these topics. They're kind of interrelated because you also talk about distributed teams. Yeah, and this is another good example of doing more with less, right? Entrepreneurs operating in smaller ecosystems, if you're operating in Singapore or Estonia or Israel or, or Rwanda, you often have to scale and build a product, an organization, a culture that can scale across markets from day one. And so you have to be born global and tackle multiple markets. And that's this notion of being born global and building a regional or a global business. Obviously, this is one of the places where there's nuance, right? Where that makes a ton of sense for a country like Singapore, if you start up in Singapore. It's a little, obviously, a different context in India. India has a massive local TAM. What's exciting, by the way, is we're now seeing a lot of Indian startups, once they reach scale locally, are also becoming global and, and multi-market too. So I think that's, I think the phenomenon is still the same. I think the speed at which you have to do it is different based on the size of your local TAM. But increasingly, we're seeing entrepreneurs around the world take an eye to the world from day one. And I think that's powerful. And the related point is this notion of building distributed teams, which is finding the best talent wherever it is. I grew up in the middle of Canada and Winnipeg. And if I was building a startup there and I needed a CMO, for instance, there aren't 500 of them the way there are in Silicon Valley that have been there, done that scale to startup. There probably aren't 50. There might be five. And they're probably already employed at some of the top companies there. It'd be really hard to get them. And so naturally, I'd have to think about getting the best person I can wherever. And if I had to go to another town or city nearby, I'd build the team around that person. I'd build that. And that's a phenomenon we're seeing is that the best entrepreneurs are building these distributed teams. There's also a range there, right? There's, you know, you could have multi, uh, multi offices, you could have a fully remote, there's everything in between. But we're seeing a shift to that mentality. And it's interesting as we're in this COVID-19 world now and everyone's on lockdown, this is a really good example of a place where you know, Silicon Valley is looking for best practice here and the best practice doesn't exist in the Valley. It is no wonder to me, it's no surprise to me, the best entrepreneurs doing fully remote, for instance, in the US are companies like Basecamp out of Chicago or Zapier out of Missouri, right? They, they, they did it because they had to. And in so doing, they turned that into an advantage. And so this idea of being born global and distributed are very related, right? There are two sides of the same coin of looking to the world for a TAM and opportunity, looking to the world for talent. But I think that one of the things that's underappreciated by this is that this generates resiliency as well. If we have a problem like we are having now on the global basis, you have a more resilient team, you have a more resilient market approach and product uh, ecosystem as well. And so I think that's one of the other advantages of building this that ties into the camel point we already discussed. Yeah. 
And the last point that I want to discuss is kind of related to this is you talk about frontier innovators being ecosystem builders, right? Maybe give us a couple of examples. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's obviously the bit around being a creator and you're, you're building your industry ecosystem and, and that's one part of it. But the, the piece that I talk a lot about in this chapter is the role of entrepreneurs in also building their startup ecosystems at the same time. And in many ecosystems, the best entrepreneurs are often angel investors, mentoring, et cetera, as they scale their business. It isn't the same hamster wheel that we have in the Valley where you do, where you build your business later on, you can be a mentor and ecosystem builder. Often you have to do it at the same time and you're rising the tide for all the boats. And one of the things that's really powerful, I call them older siblings in the book, but among the best entrepreneurs, we often see them giving back very quickly and very meaningfully in their ecosystem. Endeavor, the global nonprofit, talks about this as the multiplier effect, where some of the best entrepreneurs that hit scale actually multiply their effect in many ecosystems. We're starting to see more and more of that. I mapped the acceleration of billion-dollar businesses in emerging markets, so or in emerging ecosystems, saying like, look, in what year was there one unicorn? In what year was there another? And what's interesting is, you know, the first unicorn will be like in one year, and then a couple of years later, you might get a second. A couple of years later, you might get a third. And at some point, there's a critical mass called around four, four to six, depending on the size of the market. And then it explodes. And the next year, you right, you start having, having an exponential curve. And that's a little bit what's happening here is that as there starts being a critical mass, older siblings and folks that are giving back to the ecosystem, but have also through scale trained a army of people in how to build a fast growing business. Uh, a generation of managers now have a little bit of money to be angel investors. You start seeing that acceleration of businesses that start popping up. And so we'll see more of that. Um, and I think that's a really critical part of what's going to unlock startup ecosystems around the world is this first generation of entrepreneurs that succeed and importantly, give back. Got it. That's good. On the ecosystem front, can you talk about from your interviews and observations, you've been to India a number of times, what's unique or what's different about the Indian ecosystem? Yeah, well... One thing that I think is really exciting, and this is a massive experiment that I'm incredibly optimistic about, is Adar, which is the creation of one biometric identity that everyone can have. Obviously, the, the challenge of not having identity for everyone is not unique to India. Many emerging markets have that. The solution, I think, is incredibly powerful. Tying that with India Stack and the range of other products and services are going to mean that there's going to be a bunch of this business infrastructure not too dissimilar to some of the challenges that Giaboso faced, right? Having that stack of things will mean that it's going to be a lot easier for startups to build on top of that. And so I believe that we're going to see a number of startups coming from this infrastructure and building some business models that will inspire others elsewhere. And that's also something that I think is exciting is that we're seeing more and more inspiration around business models coming from the best entrepreneurs around the world, including from India. And I think India is now spawning some powerful businesses that are getting replicated or scaling themselves around the world. And so we'll see more of that as well. Yeah, yeah. So we are big believers in that as well. So we have companies like Freshworks that have gone global from day one, 140 plus countries globally. And a lot of SaaS companies out of India are following that road. And we're also seeing some consumer companies starting to go global, right? So I think that's a good point. And maybe before we wrap up, one of the question is, any of the books that you read while researching this that really resonated or any other pointers for, in addition to reading your book, if people want to 
refer to other things and maybe before that maybe one more time shout out for your book and where can people buy it yeah oh yeah for sure so yeah. thank you so much well so my book uh out innovate how global entrepreneurs from delhi to detroit are rewriting the rules of silicon valley is available anywhere where books are are sold including amazon in the age of covid and a lot of these small businesses facing challenges i'd recommend you buy it from a local small business as well to support that you can also follow me uh, and my work on my newsletter at alexlazaro.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W.com. A couple of folks whose work I really admire are, you know, one, obviously the research around Endeavor and what they've done, I think is really powerful. Two is there's a bunch of books that have talked about the rise of entrepreneurship in different startup ecosystems. I think Chris Schroeder was one of the first, for instance, he talked about it with his book, Startup Rising, uh, which I really enjoyed. There's organizations like Startup Genome that are trying to map startup ecosystems in different regions. And obviously, Brad Feld and things like that are working in the U.S. ecosystems, I think, are, are doing some really inspiring work. And so those are some places that I found a lot of inspiration in my work as I was writing this one. And I liked, I think this is going to be a rising tide. And I think there's going to be more and more of this. The reason I started this book was to, to start a conversation. And really challenge some of the conventional wisdoms that I think are just getting exported and in some cases applied without the proper context. And I think that it's important to understand the context is so different and that the best entrepreneurs have an opportunity to learn from folks that have similar contexts. And that's totally different than what it was 10 years ago. We now have so many more models, incredible businesses getting built across a plethora of industries. And so I'm terrifically excited for the future. Awesome. Great. So maybe any final thoughts? especially these are not easy times and for founders listening in India and other parts of the world. Uh, you want to wrap up? With? Yeah. So one is my heart goes out to all the founders out there because this is such an incredibly challenging time I and mean, having to manage how to survive, but also play to win, how to think about the team and how to think about customer. It's just uh, my, my heart goes out and we're sending positive thoughts as, as we're navigating through this. and. For folks that are considering to build a business, one of the things is that I think this is also an interesting time as well. My students often ask me, you know, how should I think about what, what business to build, what industry to tackle? And I, I'll often tell them, look, what are you passionate about? Why, why are you doing this? Why do you want to be an entrepreneur? And invariably, they'll tell me, look, I, I want to have impact. I want to change the world in some way. I want to make a difference in people's lives. And I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs start from. And in this crisis, we've laid bare some of the biggest challenges in our society, which I also believe are some of the biggest opportunities and unspoken markets. And I hope and I think that the next generation of best entrepreneurs are going to be building businesses that are going to solving some of the problems that we're exposing, we're seeing right now through COVID. And so that's my, you know, I'm a, I'm a venture capitalist, so I'm perennially optimistic, but that's my optimistic note to end on. Okay, thank you. Really appreciate you joining us. It's been very informational as well as to see an outside in view of for us if being in the Indian ecosystem on building companies at the frontier. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I really liked it, the concept of frontier innovators and how they're different from the regular innovators in the valley and how they have to build the full stack and are more creators than just entrepreneurs and how they have to be more like camels and also how most of these entrepreneurs think global from day one and building the teams also globally 
and building the whole ecosystem. A lot of great concepts here. Really enjoyed the chat and hope you did as well. Look forward to hearing from you on any feedback that you have for our podcast. You can tweet us at Axel underscore India, as well as we'd love for you to refer us to your friends if you enjoy the podcast. And finally, if you have, if you want to listen to more podcasts from the series, you can look it up at insidespodcast.in. Thanks for joining. <laughs> <laughs>